From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. Roscoe, good morning. Former President Trump could receive his third indictment this week. We take a look at the political impact. And a U.S. soldier crossed into North Korea, but the isolated authoritarian regime isn't saying much yet. Eventually, the North Koreans will charge him with some sort of alleged espionage or some sort of trumped-up charges. And then the question will be, what does the Biden administration do to get him out? Plus, a Mexican candy company made a record-breaking marshmallow. Stick with us to find out more. (laughs) It's Sunday, July 23rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. There's a new development in special counsel Jack Smith's probe of former President Donald Trump and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Smith's team has contacted Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, who, it's reported, was pressured by Trump to reverse the election outcome in his state. More from Sam Gringlass of member station WABE. A Kemp spokesman confirms the governor's office heard from Smith's team, but declined further comment. After the Georgia Republican refused to help reverse Joe Biden's victory, Trump recruited former Senator David Perdue to run against Kemp in the 2022 Republican primary. Kemp won by more than 50 points. Trump has said he's a target of the special counsel's probe, signaling an indictment may follow. In Atlanta, local prosecutors are wrapping up their own investigation into attempts to overturn the 2020 results in Georgia. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to announce charges soon. For NPR News, I'm Sam Greenglass in Atlanta. A wildfire in southern Washington state has exploded in size, burning structures and sending residents fleeing. NPR's Amy Held reports. In Klickitat County, Washington, just north of the Oregon border, officials have gone door to door telling residents to leave now. The Newell Road fire was sparked Friday, burning through grass, brush, and timber. It took less than 24 hours to reach 30,000 acres and growing, driven by hot, dry winds. Alan Leibovitz is with the state's Department of Natural Resources. We are under a red flag warning. That's a firefighter's worst nightmare because the humidity is dropping precipitously. The winds are picking up. And so the fire carries extremely fast and the fuels that it does encounter are very receptive. The county is under a state of emergency as the fire threatens homes, farms and a natural gas pipeline. Amy Held, NPR News. Russia is pounding Odessa in southern Ukraine with a barrage of missiles, killing at least one person today and wounding more. There's extensive damage in that critical port city. The BBC's James Waterhouse reports from Odessa. It was a night when windows rattled and booms filled the night sky. Odessa's air defense systems were desperately trying to take on another wave of Russian missiles. It was then another morning of assessing the damage. Six buildings were destroyed. The city's historical Transfiguration Cathedral also stands cracked and hollowed by a direct hit. Both staff and citizens are trying to recover what they can. Religious icons have carefully been placed outside. The port area of Odessa had enjoyed a diplomatic shield through an initiative which allowed Ukraine to export grain through the Black Sea. Russia had agreed to leave infrastructure alone. Its withdrawal has far-reaching consequences with this city at the sharp end. 
The BBC's James Waterhouse in Odessa. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. Bostonians are getting ready to welcome the National NAACP Convention to the city this week. The convention's arrival in the city was postponed due to the pandemic. The organization's Boston branch held a day of service yesterday to kick off the festivities. Branch President Tanisha Sullivan says anticipation for the convention is high. We are definitely um, working hard to exceed everyone's expectations for this to be a wonderful convention experience, but also for the city of Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to feel the impact of this convention for years to come. The public will be invited to programming called The Hub from Friday to Sunday. It'll feature panel discussions, a career summit, and a student exhibition and more. The convention kicks off Wednesday. Lowell Community Health Center and Tufts Medicine are partnering up. A $500,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services will help the two organizations create a medical residency program. The Lowell Sun reports the program aims to help with a shortage of primary care physicians. The hope is to receive accreditation for the program by March 2025 and start training its first students by July 2026. A 25-year-old man is facing charges after police say he exposed himself to a woman jogging near LaSalle University in Newton on Friday. The 20-year-old woman told police the man pulled over while driving to expose himself. He then fled toward Washington Street. He'll be arraigned on Monday. And researchers have tagged the first sharks of the season. Marine biologist Greg Skomal with the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries tagged the shark on Thursday. The Atlantic White Shark Conservancy shared the news on social media. Skomal tagged the 10-foot white shark about a mile north of Head of the Meadow Beach in Truro. Red Sox lost to the Mets 5-4 in the completion of their suspended game. The Sox beat the Mets 8-6 last night, and the two teams meet again at Fenway today. Sunshine today, mid-80s, mostly clear tonight, a low in the upper 60s. Sunshine tomorrow and Tuesday, upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. Buckle up, it looks like a busy political week ahead with one story to rule them all. We're talking, of course, about the likely third indictment of former President Donald Trump. This after Trump was notified that he's a target of the special counsel's investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Asma Halit. Good morning, Asma. And good morning, Aisha. Now, a, a lot is still unknown, but but what are you watching for as this next indictment is expected mm-hmm. soon? Well, I want to be clear that we don't know when an indictment may come down. It is expected soon, uh, in part because of what the former president himself has indicated. This would be the third indictment for Trump, and I will say it is arguably the most serious of the allegations the former president has faced, and it stands apart from some of the president's other legal woes. And Aisha, I say that because it is fundamentally about what happened on January 6th, the former president's efforts to overturn legitimate election results and interfere with the peaceful 
unequal transfer of power. Uh, I will say that there is no indication thus far, though, that any allegations against Trump have really had any effect on swaying his loyal base of supporters. Um, I've heard that and seen that, you know, I will say um, in interviews I did ahead of the midterms. But also when you look at polling, Trump leads the Republican primary field by double digits. Um, you know, I think the more challenging aspect for Trump, particularly if he is the GOP nominee, is how he would navigate being on trial and being on the trail, meaning the campaign trail, at the same time. Uh, already a trial date has been set for the classified documents criminal case. That's set to begin May 20th. And any additional trials in this January 6th case would likely coincide with the 2024 presidential election. And that is very politically complicated, because if Trump is indeed the GOP nominee facing Joe Biden, um, he would be facing the very man whose election he is accused of subverting. Mm. Has there been any change in how President Joe Biden is reacting to all of this? And no, I mean, his strategy seems to be utter silence. Uh, he has not spoken up about any of the criminal charges against Trump, uh, certainly nothing around this January 6th indictment. Uh, I will say also the Democratic Party as a whole has been fairly silent on this. Um, you know, I think part of this is about maintaining a firewall with the Justice Department to maintain its integrity. But, but also, you know, I think those of us who cover politics say that much of everything has a political dimension and a political season. And Trump is running for president again, as is Biden. And uh, it seems like the calculation at least from the Biden team, is that singling out Trump is not worth it, um, which is interesting because, you know, again, the president is running for re-election, Joe Biden, and he's running on this notion of defending democracy. And he has not been shy about saying that MAGA Republicans are a danger to the country, but he is not singling out any of Trump's legal woes. Well, speaking about the 2024 uh, campaign, Asma, you've done a lot of reporting on Vice President Kamala Harris. Mm -hmm. I know she's been out on the road quite a bit. Like, what what do you see as her role in Biden's reelection campaign? Mm -hmm. Well, I've been working on a story specifically about the efforts to court um, black and brown voters. I mean, she has a big, uh, I will say, push over this last month and heading into the next few weeks, reaching out to different communities of specifically African-American voters, Latino voters. And I went out with Harris to Indiana on Thursday, where she gave this big speech at a black sorority convention. Uh, she's also been out at, you know, Rainbow Push, this large Latino conference on Monday, then the NAACP. And these are all key constituents of the Democratic Party. Uh, I was talking to Democratic pollster Terrence Woodbury about this recently, and I asked him to explain Harris's role compared to Biden's. It's more about who and what she represents. The message isn't that different, but it, but I do think that there's an audience that's going to hear it better from her than they will from him. And, you know, I heard Harris speak the other day, and in the first part of her speech, she'll lay out what the administration has done, giving examples about, you know, capping insulin prices or appointing diverse judges to the bench. But then she shifts to what's being done on the other side with Republicans on reproductive rights and culture war issues. And I will say in the last couple of days, you've really seen her take the lead in slamming this new guidance for how slavery ought to be taught in Florida. Um, and what she's doing is, it seems like, really speaking out on some of these culture war issues in a way that is distinct from what President Biden is saying. And I will say that I think fundamentally, when you look at how President Biden is doing, mm -hmm. um, that, that the president's poor approval rating, what I hear is it's tied to how his own base of Democrats feel about him. So Democrats know mm. they need to energize their key base of supporters. NPR's Asma Hala. Asma, thank you so much. My pleasure. One of the perennial challenges for American administrations is North Korea. 
missile tests, a nuclear weapons program, a succession of Americans in custody, often followed by high-profile delegations to secure their release. And of course, there's another seat at the table occupied by ally South Korea, host to tens of thousands of American troops, one of them being Army Private Travis King, who crossed into North Korea last week. For a look at where relations with Pyongyang and Seoul stand now and how the King situation may complicate things, we turn to Georgetown University's Victor Cha, who served as Director for Asian Affairs on the National Security Council under George W. Bush. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Aisha. Good to be with you. North Korea has not yet acknowledged publicly that Private King is in the country. What do you make of that? That to me is not actually surprising. Uh, I'm sure they're going through their own internal procedures of when a case like this arises of interrogating the individual, probably at the immediate area in the joint security area, and then probably taking him for further interrogation somewhere else in in the country. And so I imagine that's going to take some time. These, unfortunately, these cases don't resolve quickly. So I'm not surprised that we have not heard from them yet. I think eventually we will, but it may be some time. This happens as you have North Korea testing intercontinental ballistic missiles. And this is after a long time of the U.S. trying to negotiate or not trying to negotiate or, or all of these things, and, and, and which culminated during the Trump administration with Trump meeting Kim Jong-un three times. I was there on the second time. But these meetings, which were unprecedented, they didn't go anywhere. They ended up right back with the testing. So why do you think that happened? Well, I think you're right. Not only did they not result in any successful denuclearization of North Korea, I think they're part of the reason why the North Koreans have not responded to any overtures by the Biden administration because of the failed summit meetings. I mean, you know, North Korea is an authoritarian dictatorship and they put their leader out there for the summit meetings with the U.S. president that achieved nothing for them. So I'm sure they feel very burned by that. And the legacy of these Trump summits is that the North Koreans now are not willing to talk about anything. Private King was imprisoned in South Korea for assault. And are these sorts of altercations by service members common? Um, So they do happen. Um, There's something called a status of forces agreement that the U.S. military has with host nations. Um, And these uh, agreements have been revised to acknowledge that this sort of bad behavior has happened and that there is a need for these people, particularly if they act against host nation citizens, to be tried under the law of the host nation and in the host nation courts. And that's exactly what happened to Private King. Um, And that's why he was in South Korean detention before he was eventually finished serving his sentence and was released to return uh, to the United States to face further adjudication in the United States. The U.S. has about 25,000 troops stationed in South Korea, uh, the third largest overseas contingent, and they've been there for more than 70 years. What does the average South Korean think about that? I think in general, South Koreans understand that the U.S. presence, the U.S. alliance, the U.S. security commitment has been part of what has enabled South Korea to be incredibly successful, both as a democracy and as a as an, a booming economy. That security guarantee is important. South Korea lives in a neighborhood where, I mean, you could call it a pretty tough neighborhood. They have Russia 
right there. They have China right there, and then they have North Korea. The U.S. military does have a plan now to move uh, the majority of its forces and installations that sit in the center of the city of Seoul to a large base called Pyeongtaek, which is uh, further south of Seoul, which will move the U.S. military presence out of the center of the city, which I think is a good thing for civil military relations and the longevity of the alliance. Polling in South Korea generally is quite positive on the relationship with the United States and the alliance with the United States. So I think they understand sort of the stakes here and the benefits that the alliance uh, provides. What do you expect to happen to Travis King? Do you think North Korea will fly him back to the U.S., or is he going to become a a, a pawn or a bargaining chip in a propaganda war? Yeah, I mean, I'm quite concerned about what the road ahead looks like. Even if they put Travis King out now in a video saying he wants to defect to North Korea for propaganda purposes, we will not know whether that is a coerced uh, statement or whether that is really the intention of King. Eventually, uh, the North Koreans will respond to U.S. inquiries, will charge him with some sort of alleged espionage or some sort of trumped up charges. And then the question will be, what does the Biden administration do to get him out? In the past, the United States has had to send high level officials to go and extract these people. Former President Carter, former President Clinton have gone to North Korea to bring back detained Americans. And so that might happen, but it may be months before we get to that point. That's Georgetown University professor Victor Cha. His new book, Korea, A New History of South and North, just came out this month. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aisha. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, Uprooted. That's the name of a new series launching Monday morning. We take you to Honduras, where scorching heat, severe storms, and mudslides are forcing young people off coffee farms and onto the road in search of a more reliable living. Listen listen live on your radio at npr.org or at your member station's website. You're listening to NPR News. And coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR Malaria in Florida, it is still a worry in Sarasota. Officials recently confirmed the seventh locally transmitted case there this summer. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Circus Smirkus, New England's traveling youth circus coming to Waltham July 27th to 30th and Newbury August 4th and 5th. Tickets at Smirkus.org. Join us at 9.35 this morning for this story. An iconic image from 1976 captures an unforgettable moment of racial tension in front of Boston City Hall, a conversation with Ted Landsmark, the black man in that picture. Stay with us for this story at 9.35, 73 degrees at 8.19. I'm Luis Giovanni with these headlines. Russia is pounding Odessa in southern Ukraine with a barrage of missiles, killing at least one person today and wounding more. There's extensive damage in the critical port city. Special counsel Jack Smith's team has reached out to Georgia Governor Brian Kemp in its probe of former President Trump and efforts to overturn the 2020 election. 
The month of July is heading for hottest month of recorded temperatures on Earth. Addressing the Sunday crowds in St. Peter's Square, Pope Francis appealed to world leaders to take urgent action on greenhouse gas emissions. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at WTGrantFDN.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. During a nearly quarter century in power, Venezuela's socialist government has gradually dismantled the country's democracy. Now, opposition leaders are betting on next year's presidential election to unseat Venezuela's authoritarian leader, Nicolas Maduro. But as John Otis reports, there's growing evidence that Maduro may fix the election to stay in power. Opposition politicians in Venezuela have long been deeply divided, often spending more time targeting each other rather than taking on the government. But now they are coming together. Their goal is to oust President Maduro and end years of democratic backsliding and economic strife that has provoked mass migration out of the country. Venezuela has endured 24 years of intense devastation, motivating the exodus of a quarter of our population. That's Maria Corina Machado, a former Venezuelan lawmaker, speaking last week at the Council of the Americas in New York. She and other opposition politicians will take part in a primary this fall so voters can decide which one of them will face Maduro in next year's election. Polls show that the right-wing Machado is favored to win the primary, and she's already predicting Maduro's downfall. First and foremost, it is essential that the international community prepares for the end of the Maduro regime. Indeed, Maduro would seem vulnerable. He's deeply unpopular. The International Criminal Court is investigating his regime for crimes against humanity. And he's been unable to rescue the economy, which has been further crippled by U.S. sanctions on Venezuela's vital oil industry. The sanctions are really impacting Venezuela's economy. That's Jeff Ramsey, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, a Washington think tank. In exchange for lifting sanctions, the U.S. is demanding that Maduro hold a free and fair election next year. Such a trade-off, Ramsey says, may have some support within Maduro's inner circle. It's important not to see this government as a monolith. There are elements inside the Maduro regime that want a political future, that are tired of sanctions, and are interested in rejoining the international community. Envoys for Maduro and the opposition had been meeting in Mexico City to discuss electoral conditions, but those talks have stalled. The main problem for Maduro is that he would likely lose a free and fair election. 
Perhaps for that reason, it's starting to look like he has no intention of holding one. For example, pro-Maduro lawmakers recently voted to overhaul the National Electoral Council, which will oversee next year's vote. Critics predict it will be packed with regime allies. And in a fiery speech, Jorge Rodriguez, who heads Venezuela's National Assembly, declared that electoral observers from the European Union would not be allowed into the country to monitor the presidential vote. The regime is also taking aim at Machado, the leading opposition candidate. Last month, a government spokesman announced that Machado has been banned from holding public office for the next 15 years for alleged corruption. That was a typical regime ploy. To stay in power, it has often disqualified the strongest opposition candidates. Machado shrugged it off. The regime action sparked an influx of national and international support and elevated my candidacy's popularity to unprecedented levels she will carry on campaigning, but some opposition figures are worried and suggest putting together a list of alternative candidates in case Machado is forced out. Whoever it is, the opposition candidate will face very steep odds next year as Maduro tilts the electoral playing field in his favor. David Smildy, a Venezuela expert at Tulane University, says that a sham election would bring harsh consequences. But they don't want to lose power. And so if the cost of that is that they're going to have to continue on as sort of an international pariah, they're willing to pay that price. That price, he says, could include many more years of U.S. sanctions. For NPR News, I'm John Otis. The physicist behind the creation of the atomic bomb is getting a lot of attention because of that big new Hollywood biopic, Oppenheimer. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Amid all this publicity, those who lived near where the bomb was tested back in 1945 in New Mexico are fighting to be heard. They were harmed by radiation but have never been compensated. Nate Hedgie from, Pu- from the public radio podcast Outside In reports. Paul Pino grew up in his family's ranch near Carrizozo, New Mexico. And he came from tough stock. His dad was struck by lightning. His mom and brothers walked 10 miles a day herding cattle. And for some of them, nothing could kill them but radiation. Radiation that fell from the Trinity test. That was the code name for when, about 40 miles from here, J. Robert Oppenheimer and his team of scientists tested the world's first atomic bomb. The resulting explosion created a plume so big that it spread radioactive ash more than 100 miles away, including on Carrizozo. Some people thought it was the end of the world, and they started praying like crazy, you know, to Santa Rita or whoever, because they thought the sun's coming up on the wrong side of the world. The project was top secret. The federal government told locals at the time that it was just an ammo dump explosion, that there was no danger. But the resulting fallout from the Trinity test burned the hair off cattle and covered the land in white dust. As late as the 1980s, government studies showed that people living in the fallout zone were exposed to unsafe levels of radiation. Hundreds in the area have since been diagnosed with radiogenic cancers, including Pino's older brother and his mom. She died from bone cancer. Pino says it was incredibly painful. Like if you're on the rack and getting stretched or 
those medieval things they used to do to torture people. She went through that like every day because of cancer. When are we going to hold our government accountable for testing a nuclear device in our backyard? That's Tina Cordova. Like Pino, she grew up downwind of the Trinity test and is leading an effort to get the federal government to provide restitution for cancer patients and their families there. She wants Congress to do that by amending the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. It was established in 1990 to provide a $50,000 payment to radiogenic cancer patients who live downwind of nuclear tests. But right now, it only covers a few counties in the Southwest that were exposed to fallout from other tests in Nevada in the 1950s and 60s. How is it that we were left out when we were the very first people exposed to radiation as a result of of an atomic bomb? Cordova wants the act greatly expanded to include not only victims of the Trinity test, but cancer patients in other states and U.S. territories as well who were exposed to fallout from nuclear explosions between 1944 and 1962. The bottom line is American citizens, human beings in the American West, including New Mexico, were horribly harmed because of our government's pursuit of nuclear superiority. And those American citizens need to be acknowledged and taken care of. Cordova has the ear of New Mexico Democratic Senator Ben Ray Lujan. He has repeatedly introduced legislation in Congress that would amend the act, but it never passes. Many of my colleagues that do not support these efforts say that it's, uh, it costs too much money. The government estimates the amendment would cost about $5 billion a year. But proponents point out that the U.S. spends nearly 10 times that, maintaining its nuclear arsenal. Lujan pushes back on critics of the amendment. What I'll tell them is go look at our constituents in the eyes and tell them that their lives or their parents' lives or kids' lives don't matter and that it's too expensive to care for them. The latest iteration of the bill was introduced in the Senate in May. For NPR News, I'm Nate Hedgie in Carrizozo, New Mexico. legendary summer cycling event. And no, we're not talking about that tour in France. No, we're talking Iowa. The Des Moines Register's annual Great Bicycle Ride across Iowa, also known as Ragbri, is celebrating its 50th anniversary. Started by two newspaper staffers, it's grown and grown over the years as a celebration of cycling in Iowa and some journalism too. NPR has long fielded a team of writers, including Chief Economics Correspondent Scott Horsley and White House Correspondent Tamara Keith, who will be writing again this year. And Scott and Tam, you've made time for us just before the start. I got to ask you, are y'all ready? Uh, Scott? (laughs) We've been nervously checking the weather. And why is that? Why why are y'all checking the weather? It's going to be hot. We are expecting the weather to be in the 90s, almost 100, could reach 100 degrees on certain days. And the distances that we're riding from day to day are anywhere between in the 50-ish mile range up to almost 90 miles in a single day. And before you say Iowa is flat... There are days with 3,000, 4,500 feet of elevation, feet of climb. So, um, you know, it's not as flat on a bike as it is from an airplane. (laughs) Mm. 
So, Scott, for those not in the know, what makes Ragbri so special? This started as a lark back in 1973 when John Karras and Donald Call, the register, decided to go on a bike ride, and they foolishly invited their readers to come along, and they did. And this has now morphed into what the newspaper calls the oldest, largest, longest bike ride in the country. It runs the width of the state from the Missouri River to the Mississippi. But what is really special is when you get off the bike and you spend some time with the people in Iowa, whether it's the, the 4-H kids showing off their goats or you know the marching bands serenading the riders coming up a hill or the church ladies who open up their fellowship hall to serve a beef and noodles dinner. We are all about the church ladies because often they also have pie. <laughs> Not only do you guys ride the bikes, but there's also a pie-eating contest, right? My whole entree to this ride was uh, a Wall Street Journal story which described it as the only 500-mile bike ride where you gain weight. <laughs> and I said, that, that sounds like my kind of event. So yes. we called our team No Pie Refused, or NPR for short, and we won once. We won one time. It's the, it's the annual rhubarb rumble pitting the No Pie Refused team against the Des Moines Register's team. And one year we won, thanks to a really strong anchor performance by uh, Camila Dominoski. We lost every other year, beginning with the infamous Joe Palka uh, choking incident. Oh, no. Uh, I'm happy to say Joe Joe did make a full recovery, but ever okay. since then we've had a prohibition on custard-based pies. Okay. <laughs> and I think we have uh, some tape. Let's go, Scott! Let's go, Scott! Let's go, Scott! And so, Scott, was that you or was that Scott Detra? What happens on Ragbri stays on Ragbri. It was one of us. <laughs> it uh, was one of the Scots. But I, but I think that was the lone year that we won. And fortunately, the rhubarb rumble has has uh, gone by the wayside. We still eat a lot of pie, but now at a much more leisurely pace. You go through Iowa, which is important in politics because they have those caucuses. Does it help with your reporting at all? So I did this ride in 2015, which was similarly the year before the caucuses. And I was out there like, I am going to do some reporting. What I learned is that although you meet a lot of nice Iowans along the way, doing RAGBRAI is not really the best way to come to understand Iowa voters because it's actually a great way to understand all of America because people come from all over to do this ride. And in 2015, there was just one presidential candidate <laughs> whose team set up a tent. Uh, it was Martin O'Malley who was running in the Democratic <laughs> primary. Okay. And Scott and I were together. I pull over all excited. Look, it's a presidential campaign thing. I'm going to do work here. And um while I was chatting with them, my bike fell over, the brake uh, got jostled out of place. I didn't realize it. We hopped on the bike straight into a hill, and I was like, Scott, I'm not going to make it. We pulled over, and then we realized that my brake was on. I had ridden my bike up a mountain or whatever, you know, an Iowa mountain. With your brake on. With my brake oh, on. But the lesson, I think, of RAGBRAI really is that there is a lot more to Iowa than caucuses and corn. NPR's Scott Horsley and Tamara Keith, good luck and have fun. Thank you. Stay safe out there. <laughs> I'm a little worried. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate.
You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Malaria cases not involving international travel are being reported in the U.S. for the first time in two decades, with fingers pointing at local mosquitoes for doing the infecting. Officials in Sarasota, Florida, confirmed the seventh case so far this summer. Here's Stephanie Colombini of member station WUSF. At first, Hannah Heath thought she might have food poisoning. She was vomiting and had chills and a fever. But four days passed and she was still really sick. Finally, I called my husband and I was like, you have to take me to the ER. I think I'm dehydrated. I think I need an IV. This was in late June, and Heath hadn't yet heard that malaria cases were cropping up in the county. But the doctors at Sarasota Memorial Hospital were on the lookout, and a blood test confirmed malaria. I was just like, you're kidding me, right? Because I haven't been outside the country. The U.S. typically sees a couple thousand travel-related malaria cases a year. It's caused by a parasite. People get bit by infected mosquitoes while they're in another country, but symptoms don't appear until they get to the states. But local transmission is highly unusual and hasn't happened in the U.S. since 2003, when eight people got malaria in Palm Beach. Heath is one of five patients treated at Sarasota Memorial during this summer's outbreak. It was just a weird experience, and I was just miserable. Heath is 39 and normally in great health, but the malaria was exhausting and gave her pounding headaches. Her platelet count dropped, and that increased risk of internal bleeding. Heath couldn't get out of bed without help, and her hospital bed had padding around the side rails to prevent bruising. The hospital's infectious disease doctor, Manuel Gordillo, says some of the other patients experienced similar complications, but in each case, staff could manage it. This has been around for years. There's good treatments. There's uh, straightforward diagnosis. The doctors gave Heath anti-malaria medications to clear the blood infection, After five days, she was discharged, but she recently started a new round of meds at home. Those target malaria parasites that can hide out in the liver and cause a relapse. I do appreciate that they knew how to take care of it, and I'm feeling great now. So far, all the Florida cases have been in northern Sarasota. County mosquito management workers have been busy since the first case was confirmed May 26th. They've ramped up monitoring for Anopheles, the species that can spread malaria. And they're strategically spraying insecticides to kill adult mosquitoes in the air and immature ones in the water. With a seventh case confirmed, manager Wade Brennan says workers are scouring woods, ponds, and other places to see if they've missed anything. This is what our crews are focused on, but when it comes to private property, we need everybody's help. That means checking your property for standing water that could attract mosquitoes. The county sent 140 mosquitoes to the Centers for Disease Control for testing. Three came back positive for malaria, but none since early June. Malaria doesn't spread from person to person. A mosquito carrying the disease has to bite you. Brennan says the best protection is to use repellent and cover up. It's just so important. If we can stop those mosquito bites, we can stop this from going any further. Hannah Heath is definitely on board. Since she's come home, she makes sure she, her husband, and her six-year-old son have bug spray when they go outside. I don't want anybody to go through that, but I'm just thinking, like, I don't want to see my son go through what I went through, so I'm more aware of it. He says her neighbors in the Sarasota area should seek treatment quickly if they have malaria symptoms. But for most Americans, the risk of this disease is extremely low. For NPR News, I'm Stephanie Colombini in Tampa. This story comes from NPR's partnership with WUSF and KFF Health News.
This is NPR News. I'm Susan Levy. The Dover Sherborne community is in mourning after a 17-year-old student died in a Cape Cod boating accident this weekend. The student is identified as Sadie Morrow, a rising high school senior and a lacrosse star. She died after the boat she was in with five others crashed into a jetty in Sesuit Harbor in Dennis. A 17-year-old boy was hospitalized with head injuries. The 79-year-old Connecticut man who crash-landed a plane at Martha's Vineyard Airport earlier this month has died. The Boston Globe reporting that pilot Randolph Bonnest of Norwalk died at Boston Medical Center on Thursday. State police say Bonnest was flying with his wife to Martha's Vineyard when he suffered a medical emergency shortly before landing. His wife took control of the plane she landed it in a grassy area near a runway federal officials are investigating. And researchers have tagged the first shark of the season is a 10-foot white shark tagged about a mile north of head of the Meadow Beach in Truro. Red Sox host the Mets at Fenway tonight. The Sox lost to the Mets 5-4 in the completion of their suspended game yesterday. The Sox beat the Mets 8-6 last night. 73 degrees at 840, a stretch of sun ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Shakespeare and Company in Lenox. Presenting August Wilson's Fences, starring Ella Joyce, July 22nd through August 27th. Tickets at Shakespeare.org. For many homeowners, insurance is increasingly out of reach, and a big reason is climate change. There could end up being places that become just financially impractical to have insurance coverage. How rates are going up and options are going down for responding to natural disasters. Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and if you're just waking up and your brain is kind of fuzzy, there's no better way than to shake it up by playing the puzzle. Joining us, as always, is Will Shorts. He's puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition. Good morning, Will. Good morning, Aisha. Will, would you please remind us of last week's challenge? Yes, it came from Henry Picciotto of the National Puzzlers League. I said, name a famous singer, first and last names, 12 letters in all, add a Y at the end, and the result, with respacing but not rearranging any letters, will spell a possible contribution to a picnic and how it might be served. Who is it? Well, the singer is Frank Sinatra. Put a Y at the end and you get Frank's in a tray. A lot of y'all got this one. I mean, we've received over 1,900 correct responses, and this week's winner is Brian Cahill of Los Angeles. Congratulations and welcome to the show. Thanks, Aisha. Good morning, Will. Hi there. So how long have you been playing the puzzle? I've been playing, I'd say, at least 30 years back when uh, Susan Stanberg was the host in uh, Postcard Days. 
Oh, wow. Okay, so, and you've been playing all these years, but this is your first time winning. It is. I've been, wait, I've been waiting 30 years for this. Okay. So we got to make this really good. I hope it's a good one today. <laughs> so what do you like to do when you're not playing the puzzle? Oh, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy spending time with my family and, and uh, raising my kids. And you worked in sound production, so you are an expert at, like, this audio stuff that we try to do here at NPR. I'd like to think I'm an expert, yeah. <laughs> well, then, Brian, I, I believe you're ready to play the puzzle, but they make me ask you. So are you ready? Well, we'll know in a minute. <laughs> okay, take it away, Will. All right, Brian and Aisha. Every answer today is a TV show, past or present, with a two-word title. I'll give you rhymes for those respective words you name the shows. For example, if I said Cherry Basin, you would say Perry Mason. Oh, gosh. Okay. Here we go. Number one is Fillmore Whirls. Gilmore Girls. That's it. Number two is Dayton Space. Peyton Place. Good. Showing strains. Showing strains. You got me there. And I'll give you my secret to solving. Just take away those initial letters and just think owing ains in your head. Does that help? Growing pains. I got it. Growing pains. You got it. My tip worked. Shogun's zeros. Hogan's heroes. Uh Uh-huh. Mean Quakers. Green Acres. You got it. Deer Tractor. Fear Factor. Uh Uh-huh. Car Check. I'm having a little trouble there. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, here's a big hint. Science Fiction. Oh, Star Trek. Star Trek, you got it. (laughs) Good one, Aisha. (laughs) Carney Thriller. Oh. Barney Miller. Barney Miller's it. Wool Blouse. Which sounds like it would be terrible to wear. Wool blouse. Full house. You got it. Dark bank. I can't think of that one. This is oh. a show of the 2000s. Dark yeah. bank. Yeah, and they, they do investments. Yes. Shark tank. Shark tank, yes. you got it. New plant. Uh, you got a hit for me? It's a spinoff of the Mary Tyler Moore show. Oh, Lou Grant. Lou Grant is it. Mountain tabby. Uh, Dalton Abbey? Or Downton Abbey, right? Downton. Did same. Squid Game. Squid Game, you got it. And here's your last one. Snappy phrase. Happy days. Happy days. Good job. It was worth it after all these years. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you move so fast. Like, you really know your TV. I thought I knew my TV, but you know your TV. There are a lot of people I don't think will that uh, were around during the the times that some of those shows aired. (laughs) This is true. But, yeah, no, I I mean, I watched a lot of TV land and stuff like that, so I I got a lot of them. But, yes, you did a great job. How do you feel? I feel good. I feel good. I'm glad it was a puzzle that uh, um, I could handle as opposed to some weekends I don't do very well. Well, this, see, this one was just for you. For playing our puzzle today, you'll get a weekend edition lapel pin as well as puzzle books and games. You can read all about it at npr.org puzzle. And Brian, what member station do you listen to? My family and I are members of both KCRW in Santa Monica and KPCC, our LAist in Pasadena. That's Brian Cahill in Los Angeles. Thank you so much for playing the puzzle. Thanks very much. I enjoyed it. All right, Will, what's next week's challenge? Yeah, it's a spinoff of my on-air puzzle. Name a classic TV show in two words. 
in which the respective words rhyme with the first and last names of a famous writer. Four letters in the first name, five letters in the last. Who is it? So again, classic TV show, two words, and the respective words rhyme with the first and last names of a famous writer, four, five. What's the show and who's the writer? When you have the answer, go to our website, npr.org slash puzzle, and click on the Submit Your Answer link. Remember, just one entry, please. Our deadline for entries this week is Thursday, July 27th at 3 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to include a phone number where we can reach you. If you're the winner, we'll give you a call. And if you pick up the phone, you get to play on the air with the puzzle editor of the New York Times and puzzle master of Weekend Edition, Will Shorts. Thank you, Will, and happy puzzling. Thank you, Aisha. I'm just sitting here thinking of a massive graham cracker, one big enough to squeeze this Mexican marshmallow into a monster s'more. A candy company, Dulces de la Rosa, made a marshmallow that weighs over 1,400 pounds. Why? Because they could and also to help celebrate the 200th anniversary of the state of Jalisco with a new world record. Now, 1,400 pounds is about the weight of a full vending machine, a grand piano, an adult male polar bear who's watching his weight. (laughs) Just to name a few things. Filling the marshmallow mold took about 113 minutes, and then the marshmallow had to rest before a review by an official from Guinness World Records. Once confirmed as the world's largest marshmallow, it was eaten, not by one person, (laughs) that that would be a whole lot, or even by a ravenous polar bear, but it was eaten by many, many, many happy people. My name's James Ransom. I have illustrated 72 books. My name is Lisa Klein Ransom, and I am an author of about 25 picture books. I've known Lisa since she was 19 years old. We met at Pratt Institute at a Purple Rain party. I asked her to dance, and um, we've been dancing together ever since. We knew we were a match because he would help me with all of my art projects, and I would help him with all of his writing assignments, and that's kind of how we knew we would be together forever. And indeed, Lisa Klein Ransom and James Ransom have now been married for 33 years. They've had four children, now grown, and they've produced multiple picture books together, including Before She Was Harriet, Overground Railroad, and Satchel Paige. The 2001 PBS documentary Jazz, which they watched together, helped inspire their latest children's book. For our series of conversations between authors and illustrators, picture this, we spoke with Lisa Klein Ransom and James Ransom about the story of the saxophone. I grew up with my grandmother, but she was not playing jazz. Jazz was always this music that was around me, um, but it was always this sort of um, very sophisticated music that people usually had um, you know, great taste, it was adult. And I didn't feel comfortable. I did not know the history, did not know all these things about it. But watching and listening to the Ken Burns documentary helped catch me up. Now jazz is played in my studio all the time when I'm working. James and I have become somewhat jazz fans. I grew up in a very much a jazz household with parents who were Depression era, huge jazz fans. And we're regular attendees at the Newport Jazz Festival. (laughs) 
It's like our favorite place to go. So um, I often get ideas for books. And from jazz history, I know that Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young were major um, contributors to the reason why the saxophone has developed in the jazz world in bands. So I, I said, Lisa, it would be great to do a book about Coleman Hawkins and, and Lester Young, a sort of a comparison about their sounds. So I started in on my research, as I always do, listening to music, doing some more reading. You know, when I'm working in a book, I really need to be connected to the subject that I'm writing about. I found that I couldn't make the connection that I normally make. One day, I just asked myself, like, this really simple question, who invented the saxophone? And I found an incredible story of Joseph Antoine Adolf Sax, a young man who lived in Dinant, Belgium, in the 1800s, who was the son of an instrument maker. He was a child who was really always having difficult times. He was always had a lot of bad luck in his life. I mean, by the time he was 10 years old, he had basically fallen down a flight of stairs and swallowed a needle. He'd been poisoned. He'd almost drowned. He'd been burned by gunpowder. He was even in a coma for a period of time. But he was also an incredible inventor, and he was lucky to be in a workshop alongside his father where his father let him experiment and tinker and, and tweak. And so he wound up inventing several different instruments, which included the steam organ and the sax tuba and the euphonium, the bass tuba, and the flugelhorn. But he was looking for a very specific sound when he happened upon creating the saxophone. His goal was to have this instrument highlighted as a feature instrument in military bands, which is a popular way to showcase instruments at the time. That's how it gained popularity. The real collaboration comes in the beginning when we're talking about the project. And then I go off and I start my research and my writing. Yeah, so I basically leave Lisa alone to write. I sort of pitch an idea, and then she goes and knocks a home run. Throughout that process, I will come in and share different various drafts with James. Sometimes it's a year or so before I get to the book, because remember, she can write much faster than I can illustrate. I'm always like, where is this? Where is the book? How long does it take? I get the manuscript, I look it over, and I just start almost like working with a writer that I don't know. Lisa does not come in and comment on the pictures or say, anything about them. She doesn't read it along and look at the pictures or anything. A year later, we'll get proofs, and then probably a few months after that, we get bound books. So that's the process. It's quite a long process. I love what he surprises me with when I walk into the studio and I discover, oh, and this is what he's doing. Oh, and this this page. And you look and each page, as you turn the page, you're just drawn into this world. You're in Belgium, you're in Paris. You know, you're in Mexico, you're in New Orleans, and he creates worlds for young readers that I think are just magical. I try to make it a little uh, on the on humor side, making people shorter or wider. So there's exaggerations in the, in the body parts. But maybe I should step back and say, imagine black and white drawings with touches of watercolor and touches of collage. 
all the saxophones that you see in the interiors, I didn't paint, those are all collage pieces. So I just took pictures of saxophones, I cut them up, almost like a Picasso type saxophone. I wanted it to be the sort of dominant thing on the page that we sort of follow, like a bouncing ball going through the book. What I love about what James did with the saxophone, which is, you know, why he's one of my favorite illustrators, it replicates the idea of this boy who pieced together this brand new instrument. And so it really does illustrate that. I never thought about that. Oh, really? Yeah, I never thought about that. <laughs> it's very shocking for people that the saxophone is, is an instrument that we really do associate with jazz. And here is this man in Belgium who really wanted an instrument that would sound great in regimental bands, which to me is kind of the opposite of jazz. <laughs> and jazz musicians, you know, often black jazz musicians, took this instrument, made it their own, and transformed music. This is one where I suggested something and what she brings back is always much, much better than I could ever imagine. You know, her storytelling is interesting, how she connects things, how she sort of finds um, a viewpoint um, about him being curious and how he always sort of got himself into trouble because he was curious. I think it's just phenomenal writing. I mean, that's what it's all about. And I think that's what makes it so fun, you know, reading the book and sharing the book, with, uh, especially with young readers, even with adults, for them to discover that this instrument was invented so long ago by this very young man. I don't know if he was even 20 years old when he invented the saxophone. And he invented it simply because he was curious. I think that sometimes the ways in which we live and grow in this world, especially with children, curiosity sometimes is the first thing that leaves us. I think that sometimes people, kids in particular, aren't encouraged to ask and explore enough. And it was only through Joseph Antoine Sachs's curiosity that he made these discoveries. So I hope that they remember to remain curious about exploring and looking at the world. That was Lisa Klein Ransom and James Ransom talking about their children's book, The Story of the Saxophone. Our series, Picture This, is produced by Samantha Balaban. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with two rinses a day. SmartMouth mouthwash can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. This is NPR. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR on what promises to be a beautiful Sunday. I'm Susan Levy. As Weekend Edition Sunday continues, the latest developments in the investigation into the murder of Tupac Shakur.
And if you missed Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me yesterday, you can catch it again this morning at 10. Wait, wait, every Saturday and now Sunday mornings, too. Listen anywhere on the WBUR app. 73 degrees at 859, a stretch of sun ahead. Stay with us. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Emmy Blotnick revealed herself to be a genius of marketing. I've always said that should be the slogan for cottage cheese. Yes. It looks expired when it isn't. <laughs> I'm Peter Sagel. The slogan for our show is it looks like NPR, but it isn't. See what we mean when you join us for this week's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturday and now Sunday at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Radio Boston Executive Producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The list of former President Trump's legal problems is getting longer. Now he may face charges related to January 6th. We break down the latest. And myopia, or nearsightedness, is on the rise. Find out why more and more kids are needing glasses. Plus, want to worry more about doomsday? There's an app for that. A supervolcano is a volcano capable of creating extinction-level events. The idea of having all these horrible facts end with this good morning. (laughs) Something about that was just really funny to us. It's Sunday, July 23rd. News is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Southern European destinations are battling record heat and wildfires. On the Greek island of Rhodes, a wildfire forced thousands of tourists and residents to shelter in schools and stadiums. In Washington state, officials say a fast-moving wildfire near the border with Oregon has taken off in less than 24 hours and burned more than 30,000 acres. There are evacuation orders. Alan Leibovitz is a spokesman for Washington state's Department of Natural Resources. He says the fire threatens major properties. Solar farm, a wind farm, uh, a um, landfill facility that generates natural gas, Uh, transmission lines for that, power transmission lines, um, a number of historic uh, resources, uh, cultural resources, uh, and it's also moving towards uh, the Yakima um, Reservation. He says the area is under a red flag warning with low humidity and high winds. A new week on Capitol Hill and the Senate returns to legislation to set defense spending priorities for the coming year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says expect a very different measure from the one already passed in the GOP-controlled House. NPR's Winsor Johnston reports. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says the Senate process on the NDAA stands in stark comparison with that of the House. In the Senate, Democrats and Republicans have worked together, mindful of the importance to preserve our national security, while the process in the House, unfortunately, was sadly delayed and at times derailed. 
by wildly partisan and irrelevant hard-right amendments that have nothing to do with defense. The House bill includes provisions that would reverse the Defense Department's policy on abortion and eliminate diversity and inclusion programs at the Pentagon. Ultimately, lawmakers will have to merge the two versions into one bill and then send that combined measure back to both chambers for a vote. Windsor Johnston, NPR News. A city park on the Rio Grande in Eagle Pass, Texas, has been declared private property in a state effort to make it easier to arrest migrants. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton reports. Many migrants have crossed into the U.S. at the park, making it a prime target of Texas Governor Greg Abbott's Operation Lone Star, his $4 billion security initiative. The affidavit in which Eagle Pass Mayor Rolando Salinas declared the city park private property was signed earlier this year. It was obtained by multiple news outlets on Friday. Officials claim the move allows them to enforce the criminal trespass statute of the Texas Penal Code. Immigration attorneys claim that more than 400 immigrants have been jailed for entering the park since June. Floating buoys were recently installed in the river near the park to deter people from swimming across. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The Dover-Sherborne community is in mourning after a 17-year-old student died in a Cape Cod boating accident this weekend. The student was identified by her high school principal as Sadie Morrow. She was a rising senior and a lacrosse star. She died after the boat she was in with five others crashed into a jetty in Sasuet Harbor in Dennis. A 17-year-old boy was hospitalized with head injuries. This summer's heavy rain has taken a toll on many businesses across New England, including in the tourism-reliant lakes and White Mountains regions of New Hampshire. Torin Stegemeyer is the owner of Wake Winnie Water Sports in Wolfboro, New Hampshire. He says he had to cancel reservations last week because of storm-related road closures. He says he's seen a decrease in bookings this summer, even though few days have been totally rained out. The daily forecast might say that it's going to be thunderstorms, but it's like a 20% chance, and people aren't looking at that 20%. They're just assuming thunderstorms all day. Other businesses say that while lodging numbers have remained consistent, they have noticed fewer day trippers. The rain has been a silver lining for some indoor retailers, though, who say tourists have gone shopping when they've been unable to hit the trails or the lake. The Seacoast Science Center in New Hampshire is learning about a unique dolphin that became stranded on Hampton Beach. The team wrote on social media they attended to a deceased young female striped dolphin. The team says they've never seen a striped dolphin on the seacoast. They tend to be a deepwater species that travel in temperate and tropical waters. And good news for swimmers on the North Shore. Newburyport reopened all beaches on Plum Island this morning. The beaches had been closed for a week after the water exceeded bacteria levels. Newburyport says a new round of testing finds the water is safe for swimming. Red Sox host the Mets at Fenway tonight. The Sox lost to the Mets 5-4 in the completion of their suspended game. The Sox beat the Mets 8-6 last night. Sunshine today, mid-80s, mostly clear tonight, a low in the upper 60s, and sun tomorrow and Tuesday, upper 80s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org.
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Good morning. The word unprecedented keeps coming to mind when it comes to former President Donald Trump. He's the first former president in U.S. history to be indicted. And as he campaigns to return to the White House, he's also facing a lot of legal trouble. And not just the indictments in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case and the Stormy Daniels hush money case and a jury's decision that he raped E. Jean Carroll. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says he's been contacted by special counsel Jack Smith's office as the council investigates 2020 election interference. And just last week, Trump himself announced that he received a target letter from the Department of Justice notifying him that he's a subject in the investigation into the January 6th insurrection. Prosecutors normally issue target letters before filing charges. To talk more about that case, we're joined by Andrew Weissman, formerly a lead prosecutor on special counsel Robert Mueller's team and now a professor at New York University School of Law. Good morning. Good morning, Aisha. So I want to start with the obvious question. The DOJ has been doing this investigation for a while and so far has charged more than a thousand people why are we seeing movement in Trump's January 6th case now? I think there, there are two reasons. Uh, first, having been on a special counsel investigation, as you noted, I think that there's internal pressure to proceed as fast as possible because of your obligation to the American public to get on with it and not to let these things linger the way people say the Ken Starr investigation or the John Durham investigation did. And I think the second reason is that there really is a time clock here where um, I think it's probably something that Jack Smith thinks is important for the American public to be able to know what happened and to make an evaluation for themselves based on the evidence presented at trial, whether, whether there's a conviction or an acquittal. I mentioned Trump's other two indictments, the classified documents case and the hush money case. Do you consider a possible January 6th indictment to be of a different league and a different caliber? I do. And I say that even though uh, I was the general counsel of the FBI and the Mar-a-Lago documents case is incredibly important because of the threat to national security of the United States that those charges um, uh, suggest um, if proved. Um, but I think that the January 6th case really part of our democracy with, um, again, if it's proved uh, to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt that you have a former president who was willing to overthrow the will of the people. And it's, it's hard to think of a crime that is more central to uh, American democracy than that. What would the possible charges be for the January 6th case? So one of the the things that I think everyone sort of anticipates is a charge that's been brought against many, many people in Washington, D.C. with respect to the January 6th case, and that is obstruction of Congress. Uh, It's 18 U.S.C. 1512, to just be a nerd in terms of the actual criminal statute. Uh, and so that's just obstructing Congress in its in its duties, um, which were to count the votes and to accord the election to the winner, which was Joe Biden. 
Um, another charge that's gotten a lot of attention recently is a violation of civil rights. That is a statute that was enacted after the Civil War to protect uh, freed slaves and a violation of their right to vote by the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and that has been interpreted to cover uh, the right, all of our rights to vote and diluting our right to vote. And so there seems to be quite a good fit in terms of undermining the votes of approximately 80 million people who voted for Joe Biden, where the goal of the January 6th insurrection uh, was to have those votes essentially thrown out. So what what would be the challenge for DOJ prosecutors, um, you know, if this case goes to trial? Because you're 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 basically putting on trial someone who's running for office, the the front runner um, and and someone who was president. Sure. Well, you know, it's worth remembering up to that score that Jack Smith came from not just the as, as a state prosecutor and federal prosecutor, but also the International Criminal Court, where he dealt with political figures who had abused their positions of power. So for him, uh, this would not be, unfortunately, something new. Um, I do think that there are a lot of challenges here. One would just be getting the case to trial, because um, if you're trying to have a trial before the election, that is a relatively short time frame. Uh, remember, defendants entitled to due process in terms of having enough time to prepare, go through discovery, et cetera. And then obviously the second is jury nullification, making sure that the whoever the judge is who's assigned does a very thorough job to make sure that each and every one of the selected jurors can follow their oath of office to just decide the case based on what happens in court and nothing else. And, and just quickly in the 30 seconds we have left, what key questions do you want answered in the coming days? I'm really interested in um, whether there will be other uh, defendants who are charged, um, uh, people like uh, John Eastman, uh, Jeffrey Clark, who was a former DOJ person. So I think that's one key thing. And then I think I'm very interested in hearing what uh, the evidence is, you know, the same way that we saw the Mar-a-Lago case, there was a lot of new information in, in those uh, charges. And I suspect that will be the same here, where we learn a lot of uh, new material based on the investigation that Jack Smith has been uh, conducting. That's Andrew Weissman, a former prosecutor with the Justice Department. Thanks for speaking with us. You're welcome. At the very beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, Russian troops reached the outskirts of the capital, Kyiv. The fighting devastated nearby Bucha, killing hundreds of civilians and reducing much of the suburb to rubble. Today, Bucha is coming back to life. NPR's Greg Myrie has the story. This energetic concert at a packed open-air theater in Bucha's main park is part of the town's rebirth. Families strolled the lush, manicured grounds on a gentle summer evening that could be most any small town in Europe. Bucha's mayor is Anatoly Fedorik. Rebuilding at the fastest pace possible is very important. This provides the psychological support our citizens need so they can see the city being renewed. Yet even this day is filled with somber moments. The mayor dedicated a newly built wall of honor. Silver plaques feature the names of 501 civilians killed during Russia's occupation in March of last year. 
dozens of plaques are blank, reflecting the 80 bodies still not positively identified. We demand justice. We demand that even after we achieve victory, the Russians must be punished for what they did here. A short distance away, the scars of the Russian invasion remain. Mangled, rusting vehicles, homes and shops pierced by bullets and shrapnel. One of the most powerful images from Bucha last year was the utter devastation on the main road into town, Vogzalna Street. It was clogged with the blackened ruins of Russian tanks. Most every home was destroyed. On this day, Olha Kornich is working in the yard of her newly rebuilt tan two-story stucco home. The rebuilding started in March this year, and they finished it recently. They're still planting trees. She then recalled the terrifying day Russian tanks came rumbling down her narrow street. Around 7.30 in the morning, the convoy of tanks passed by. We drank tea and coffee and watched TV. We didn't panic at first. Then we heard the machine gun. We barely managed to make it to the basement. She was one of nine family members and neighbors who took refuge underground as a Russian tank took up a position in her yard. We were stuck in the cellar until the end of the battle. It was horrible. They managed to escape at the end of that harrowing day. Now the tanks are long gone. The homes are brand new. The money came from the Howard G. Buffett Foundation. It's based in Illinois and operates mostly in Africa and Latin America. Buffett says he came to Ukraine because the need is so great. These people did nothing wrong. They did not deserve this. They did not ask for this. It should not have happened to them, and they've lost everything. Buffett spoke to NPR while on his eighth trip to Ukraine. His foundation has committed $450 million to multiple projects around the country. In Bucha, a roundabout is now called Buffett Square, marked with a large sign. This is a place where Howard Buffett is much more famous than his father, billionaire investor Warren Buffett. Howard Buffett gives credit to the local groups that have done so much to rebuild Bucha and recalled a recent visit. It's just amazing to see it. It's an incredible change. It has to give people hope. Bucha's revival is happening more rapidly than other ravaged places. The war still rages in the south and east. Even in relatively stable areas, Ukraine lacks the resources to rebuild. The cost is expected to be astronomical. Estimates put the nationwide reconstruction figure as high as $1 trillion. There's talk of seizing frozen Russian assets abroad and giving that money to Ukraine, though right now it's just talk. Meanwhile, back at the concert, as the music comes to a close, the audience rises to express gratitude and imagine better days ahead. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Bucha, Ukraine. You're listening to NPR News. This is WBUR. In a little over 15 minutes, an iconic image from 1976 captures an unforgettable moment of racial tension in front of Boston City Hall. A conversation with Ted Landsmark, the black man in that picture, at 9.35 this morning. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MIFA, the Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority. 
providing resources and tools to help you navigate the college planning process, including customized plans of savings, loans, and guidance with webinars, calculators, and an informative podcast. More information at MEFA.org. From the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you, listen live, and catch up on anything you might have missed. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. In an emergency heart procedure early today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu had a pacemaker inserted. He's under observation in a Tel Aviv area hospital. A marathon debate is underway in the Israeli parliament ahead of a vote of a key feature of the government's planned judicial overhaul. The proposed change has triggered months of protests. As soon as tomorrow, the little bird icon on Twitter accounts is set to be changed to an X, the latest big change since Elon Musk bought the social media platform for $44 billion last year. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. This is NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. We're going to take a look now at what was a 30-year-old cold case. It's the 1996 shooting death of Tupac Shakur. The rapper was 25 years old when he was shot while riding home from a boxing match at the MGM Grand. While stopped at a red light, a white Cadillac pulled up next to Shakur's car and opened fire. The case is still unsolved, but Las Vegas police executed a search warrant last week on a home in Henderson, Nevada, that has lots of people wondering if there's new life in the investigation. Joel Anderson is a staff writer at Slate and host of season three of the podcast Slow Burn, all about the murders of Shakur and later the Notorious B.I.G. Hello and welcome to the program. Hey, Aisha. Thanks for having me on. According to the Associated Press, public records link the home where the search warrant was executed to the wife of Dwayne Keefe D. Davis, the uncle of Orlando Anderson. Can you give us some context for who these people are? Okay, so we can start with Keefe D., otherwise known uh, by his government name, Dwayne Keith Davis. He was a big-time drug dealer in south-central L.A. in the Compton area, and he was one of their, you know, OG Southside Crips uh, from that time. He was the uncle of Orlando Anderson, another Southside Crip, who is the man who got into a fight with Tupac in a Vegas casino after a Mike Tyson fight. It wasn't long after that fight that they had in the casino that Tupac is shot to death. There is a very famous video of Tupac and his entourage getting into it with Orlando Anderson at the MGM. That fight has been seen and known for a very long time, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah. And if you think about it in the moment, it's sort of remarkable. Tupac was not a gangster, yeah. but he injected himself into a gang fight that night, which is how things seem to have went pretty deadly pretty quickly. So in, in 2018, Davis, the uncle of Orlando Anderson, gave an interview for a BET show where he admitted to being in the front seat of the Cadillac that pulled up next to Shakur's car and said his nephew, Orlando Anderson, was one of the people in the back seat where the shots were fired from. Now, Anderson died in 1998. So what do you make of his uncle's comments to BT? I mean, we have to be careful here, but it sounds like he's walking up to the line of saying, yeah, we was there and we did it, or I know who did it, right? Oh, it'd be fair in this instance to call Keefe D a habitual line stepper. Like, I mean, not only okay, has he crept okay. up to the line, but he's crossed over it a number of times. I mean, he's written his own book, Compton Street Legend, in which he said that he and his nephew were in the car. He's given interviews, many of them on YouTube. That's what he's been doing for the last 27 years, and it seems like maybe it's caught up with him. Why do you think it's taken so long for the police to even make some type of advance in this case? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One is that, you know, I mean, without being too explicit about it, this is a young black man, right? And so Vegas didn't have a lot of incentive to look into the case, for one, because that really could have affected a trial. Let's say a murder trial happens about Tupac in the wake of that. I mean, think about how that might have affected the tourism industry in Las Vegas, something that they've sort of tried to struggle with for years about, hey, we want to make this a safe place. But also the other thing is that most of the people, the person that's directly responsible for Tupac's death is dead, more than likely, allegedly, Orlando Anderson. And everybody else in that car, except for Keefe D on that night, they're dead too. So the police really had no incentive to make a case here because there's nobody to throw in prison, really. But maybe they're going to try something else. I don't know. But, um, you know, there's just, there hasn't been a lot of incentive. And everybody sort of, anybody who hasn't fallen victim to conspiracy theories has always sort of known that Keefe D and Orlando Anderson were involved in Tupac's death in one way or another. Mm. I mean, Shakur obviously had a lot of issues with the police, um, was very critical of the police in his lyrics and in life. What do you make of this renewed interest in the criminal case and what that might say or mean for um, Tupac's legacy? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple things here. There's a lot of renewed interest in it, um, in part because... This is the 50th anniversary of the founding of hip hop. And there was this recent Dear Mama documentary about him and his mother, Afini Shakur. He also was awarded a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. And just to be frank, no matter how long it's been since Tupac is dead, he's still going to be one of the more famous black celebrities that there's ever been, right? And so there's always going to be a lot of interest in the circumstances of his death. And I would also say for a detective in any police department, it really doesn't cost you much to look into this case, right? The upside is that you piece together the case or the investigation that finally puts a name to the murder of Tupac. What a big deal. If you don't, we're right back where we are right now. And I, I should say four years ago when we were working on that season of the Slow Burn podcast, we called the Las Vegas police for more information and they said they couldn't comment because this was still an active and ongoing investigation. And I was like, what? What are you kind of talking about? What, what, you know, what does that mean? I thought they were just trying to uh, deflect and, and, and drive me away from asking more questions. But obviously, they, they were telling the truth in that instance. That's Slate's Joel Anderson. He hosted season three of the podcast Slow Burn. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. If the world is looking a little more blurry lately, well, sure, it could be because you're getting older, but some scientists say it could also be because you didn't spend enough time outdoors as a kid. Myopia, or nearsightedness, is on the rise around the world today, especially among children. To understand some of the reasons why and how to prevent it, we turn to Dr. David Epley. He's with the American Academy of Ophthalmology and a pediatric ophthalmologist at Children's Eye Care in Kirkland, Washington. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So you're a pediatric ophthalmologist. So let's start there. What are you seeing in terms of kids developing myopia? Yeah, we're seeing um, lots more children developing myopia uh, over time compared to previous decades. But are more adults also presenting and having this issue? Well, more adults are getting myopic because they develop myopia as a child, which is when we typically develop nearsightedness is as through our growth process between 6 and 16 years of age. As we grow, our eyes grow too long. That's what nearsightedness is, as the eyes become defocused for far away and better focused for close up. And so what is happening to our eyes when we're outdoors that would help prevent myopia? Science isn't uh, perfectly clear on this, but it seems that the spectrum of light, the, the wavelengths of light in outdoor light are different than those wavelengths in indoor light, and then that conveys some sort of a protective effect. But primarily, we think that it's that when you're outside, your face isn't buried in a book or in a, a phone or a tablet. You're looking at things that are farther away, that relaxes your accommodation or your focus. The focusing thing up close is um, about two things. It's about the distance from your face. So holding things too close, less than 12 inches in, can contribute to it. And it's also about the intensity or the length of time you're spending doing that close work. There are a couple of other environmental factors, such as Low levels of vitamin D. If you're not outside, your body isn't converting to vitamin D uh, in your system. And then also your diet can play a bit of a role there, too, in terms of uh, environmental factors. Can myopia lead to any other serious conditions? Obviously, you may have to wear glasses or get contacts, but can it get more serious than that? Yeah, and this is the reason that uh, ophthalmologists and pediatric ophthalmologists are, are concerned about this is that as you get more and more nearsighted, your eye is larger and bigger and not meant to be that way. And so there are some conditions that can happen decades down the road that can affect your eyesight permanently sometimes. And in particular, we worry about this in people that are what we call highly myopic. So over minus six diopters of myopia they're at higher risk for um, certain types of glaucoma, for early cataracts, which is a cloudiness to the lens that drops your vision. Um, they're also at risk, though, for um, macular degeneration at a much younger age, not just the older age macular degeneration, but younger. Um, and for other conditions of the retina, like retinal detachment, that can compromise the vision. Can you reverse myopia? 
We can't really reverse myopia. The, once the eye has grown, they're kind of the way it is for your visual system. So it's better to prevent the development of it in the first place. And there are some things we can do to slow that down, such as making sure that you, your kids get outside for an hour a day. The second thing that parents can do is to follow uh, what we call the 20-20-20 rule, which is for every 20 minutes of near work, reading, phones, tablet, laptop, you take a 20-second break. And during that 20-second break, you stop looking at things up close. You look at something that's 20 feet or more away. So every 20 minutes, 20-second break, looking 20 feet or more away. If nearsightedness has developed, the ways that we can treat that myopia to slow down progression. Um, and these days, we have kind of a variety of things. There's eye drop medication that helps to prevent the eye from growing as much. There are contact lenses, a couple different types, uh, something called orthokeratology, which is a hard contact lens you wear at night that reshapes the surface of your eye. And also, contact lenses, soft lenses you uh, wear during the day. And in the near future in the U.S., and currently in some other parts of the world, there are glasses, certain types of specialized glasses, lenses, that can help slow down that progression as well. That's Dr. David Epley. He is a pediatric ophthalmologist at Children's Eye Care in Kirkland, Washington. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Just in case doom scrolling wasn't enough to remind you of all the bad news, you can now wake up to a reminder. Scientists expect climate change to worsen wildfires and floods around the globe. 200 million people could be refugees by 2050. That's the voice from an app called the Doomsday Alarm Clock. It was created by Brooklyn copywriters Steve Nass and Peter Henningsen. I think Steve and I both agree we're pretty neurotic people, both, uh, you know, worried about the state of the world and then just sort of this idea of, well, what if we could, you know, take that that fear and turn it into an alarm clock that would really just jolt people out of bed in the morning. Nass says there was actually research involved. The one funny thing about this is we did have to research all these different kinds of apocalyptic scenarios um, and to get all the facts and uh, pick our favorites, uh, favorites in this weird uh, <laughs> criterion. And you can pick from a bunch of other disasters that freak you out, like a supervolcano. A supervolcano is a volcano capable of creating extinction-level events. 20 known supervolcanoes exist around the world. There An asteroid strike. If a large enough asteroid were to make contact with our planet, it would cause a mass extinction. Category 10 earthquakes would be felt worldwide. Debris would block out the sun. The threat of nuclear war. If a nuclear weapon was believed to have been launched at the United States, the president would only have 12 minutes to react. And they all go on a loop until you wake up. But it's not all bad. The alarm does have a nice little greeting. Good morning. Just the idea of having all these horrible facts end with this good morning. <laughs> it was something about that was just really funny to us. And we're like, yes, this, this, we need to make this out. The guys say they're always thinking of new scenarios to add. I think we agreed when we made this, you know, plague was too soon. You know, we got we have a Google Doc somewhere with a bunch of bunch of backups. But ultimately, Nass and Henningsen say they're hoping to contribute to the greater good. I mean, it's there's so much going on in everybody's lives, these issues, these sort of overarching kind of existential issues, but they just they kind of fall into the back of your mind with all the sort of minutiae you deal with every day. This is just sort of a way to firmly plant it in your head first thing in the morning so you don't totally forget. I mean, I think definitely we want to get people, you know, Forgive the pun, but it's a wake-up call in a sense. Um, and then it's a free app. We encourage donations to a global warming charity that we think is pretty good. 
I mean, if you just throw a couple bucks to that as you would for a two, three dollar app, I mean, that helps for sure. Until then, beware the AI. Facial recognition software is already being employed for mass surveillance. That was Steve Nass and Peter Henningsen. But do not be alarmed. I am just a smartphone application who isn't watching you sleep. Good morning. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Susan Levy. This week, delegates arrive in Boston for the NAACP's national convention taking place in a city with a reputation as racist. A professor in the School of Public Policy and Urban Affairs at Northeastern University occupies a key spot in the story of that reputation, as heard in this 1976 WGBH television report. A group of white youths viciously attacked a black attorney, Theodore Landsmark. Landsmark was on his way to a meeting in City Hall when he was beaten by youths. Ted Landsmark recently met with WBUR Sharon Brody at the precise location of that violence that helped define an era. We are located about 50 yards from the entrance to the Boston City Hall. I was on my way to an affirmative action meeting with city officials to try to open more jobs for uh, people of color and minority contractors in the city of Boston. Um, I was attacked by a group of anti-busing high school demonstrators, and that moment was captured uh, in a famous photograph where a young person was trying to kill me with the American flag. The photo was called The Soiling of Old Glory. For that shot, the photojournalist Stanley Foreman won a Pulitzer Prize. Ted Landsmark says that image captured an undeniable reality. Boston certainly has a history of racist policies and practices. But Landsmark says the city has made progress. For example, these days, people of color hold a large share of city council seats and mayoral cabinet positions. He says he wants convention goers to visit Boston's neighborhoods and experience the diverse array of people, places, and activities that make the city what it is. Because, Landsmark says, that will give the delegates a deeper understanding of the city's past, the positive developments, and the challenges that persist. So in many respects, um, the city is a much more open and welcoming place than it was uh, four or five decades ago. But the private sector has its own cultures, uh, its own... um, small ways of seeing to it that there's intergenerational passage of employment uh, within families and within uh, groups of people who've graduated from certain schools. Boston is actually a very small city uh, where small groups of uh, affiliated individuals uh, have passed on privilege Uh, from one generation to the next, whether it's been within the fire department 
uh, or the court system. And uh, we have found uh, over the years that despite a lot of pronouncements in favor of opening positions to uh, women and people of color in the city, uh, there has continued to be a somewhat tribal aspect. More of us who are people of color in Boston have to feel as though uh, we are not only welcome, but that we're stakeholders here, that we are policymakers, that we have an ownership role in terms of the future of the city. Landsmark suggests that's part of why hosting this year's NAACP convention resonates as an important moment for Boston. And he says, while there's hard work ahead in Boston and nationwide, he holds on to hope. There are people all across the United States who want to reverse uh, the racial progress that we've made over the past uh, half century. And uh, sometimes when uh, one is an activist, one can feel a little frustrated that we haven't put an end to uh, racial injustice by now. But the fact is that there are uh, rising generations of activists um, who have continued the fight, and uh, that provides a sense of optimism. Ted Landsmark is a longtime civil rights activist and is a professor of public policy at Northeastern University. The NAACP convention gets underway this Wednesday in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston. AStreetFrames.com. And Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in just about 10 minutes, some pretty thrilling summer reads. 76 degrees at 940, a stretch of sun ahead. Stay with us. For many homeowners, insurance is increasingly out of reach, and a big reason is climate change. There could end up being places that become just financially impractical to have insurance coverage. How rates are going up and options are going down for responding to natural disasters. Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Hint's 25 flavors include blackberry, coconut, and blueberry lemon. In stores or at hintwater.com. From the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people, at wtgrantfdn.org. 
This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. With Hollywood actors and screenwriters on strike against the major studios, this year's Comic-Con is a bit different. The big streamers and studios usually pull out all the stops to promote their upcoming releases and shows, but they canceled their promos during the biggest comic book and pop culture convention. NPR's Mandelite Del Barco is in, is in San Diego for Comic-Con, which wraps up today. She joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. So are, are there any celebrities there at all this year? <laughs> well, you know, in past years, studios like Marvel and Warner Brothers brought out a cavalcade of stars of their upcoming superhero or blockbuster movies. Super fans cram in to cheer them on on stage in the convention center's famous Hall H. For example, the spotlight in the past was on cast of, the cast of Black Panther, The Avengers, the latest Star Wars movies or series. But under the strike rules of the Actors Union, SAG-AFTRA, and the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, members cannot promote any of their projects at red carpets, at press events, promos. So there's nothing here for the upcoming Blue Beetle movie or Dune Part 2 or the series Abbott Elementary. Some people are supporting the strike by wearing SAG-AFTRA t-shirts and pins over their costumes. And the union's executive director, Duncan Crabtree Ireland, who was here for a panel on AI. He, to he told me that all that support is cool. But I did meet up with one A-lister, Jamie Lee Curtis, who's here not as an Oscar-winning actress, but as the co-author of a new graphic novel called Mother Earth. That's not against the union rules to be for her to be here. And, and during the panel, the screen queen talked about her eco-horror story. I am seeing the effect the climate crisis has wreaked on the world. And that's really the inspiration. The inspiration is terror. You'll hear more about the book and the interview I did with Jamie Lee Curtis in an upcoming story that I'm working on for NPR. Oh, I, I cannot wait. Love Jamie Lee Curtis. But if, <laughs> but if the studios can't bring their stars, what are the studios and streamers doing instead? Well, you know, some studios, studios are here promoting their books and their video games and toys. And there are some movie and TV show tie-ins uh, outside of the convention center. For example, um, Disney is advertising its new movie, Haunted Mansion, that opens on Friday. The Haunted Mansion activation, you can take pictures on, a recreated, on recreated movie sets. And I talked with the pop-ups creator, Frankie Chan. He's the founder of iHeart Comics, and he's been coming to Comic-Con for 20 years, starting out as a comic book writer and artist. The SAG strike and the WGA strike are, are both happening. But also, the reality is that these movies are still coming out. They need to be promoted. And there's no other, other place in the world where you can be in front of a, as many fans than Comic-Con. So it is a tricky tight rope for sure, but I think there is something mischievously great about the, the purity of what Comic-Con was all about, kind of having a real presence here versus the marketing hype. So, I mean, if Hollywood isn't sucking up all the oxygen at Comic-Con, then what are we seeing instead? 
Well, you know, in a lot of ways, Comic-Con is really, this year, back to its comic book roots. It's been a chance for smaller, independent artists and publishers to get some love. I watched super devoted fans get their books autographed by Japanese artist Makoto Yukimura. He created Vinland Saga. It's a manga that inspired an anime series. And he told me through an interpreter that he's in the U.S. for the first time. I knew going into this manga series that I wanted to write a story about peace. And I, I also stopped by the booth for Fantagraphics books where uh, I met Brianna Lowenson. She's here with her new graphic memoir, Ephemera. It has really felt like is a return to comic books. The crowds have just been so hungry to look at comics and read comics, and it's been really fun selling out of my book. And I also met some children from San Diego selling comic books that they had drawn themselves. Oh, I mean, in a few seconds we have left, tell us about some of the best costumes you're seeing this year. Uh, you know, there's lots of Barbies and Kens in fluorescent roller skating outfits, Indiana Jones, various Mandalorian and Ahsoka cosplay, Spider-Man of all ages, from Toby, the Tobey Maguire version to Miles Morales. Uh, and there are a lot of blue and green creatures from Avatar and Guardians of the Galaxy. It's really fun. <laughs> That's NPR's Mandalit Del Barco at Comic-Con. Thanks, Mandalit. Thank you. On a hot summer day, what's better than some ice-cold lemonade? Many people in South Asia say they have a contender, and it's a drink they say refreshes the soul. You might look for it in your nearest South Asian grocery store. Reporter Sushmita Patak got hers on the crowded streets of Old Delhi. It's a hot, humid afternoon, and Abdul Wahid is hacking at a big block of ice with a knife. The ice sits in a pool of a deep red liquid. As chunks of the ice break off, Wahid pours me a glass. Thank you. Now oh, this is so cool and refreshing. It has a very sweet floral taste. And it's not like anything I've ever had before. This is the life of the summers. It's the pride of the summers, goes the announcement at Wahid's stall. The drink is called Ruavza, Urdu for soul rejuvenator. And it is South Asia's go-to summer beverage. The sound of the summer birds and the taste of Ruavza, you know, it just transports to me. I just love Ruavza. Food critic Mariam Reshi has been having Ruavza since the 1960s, when her family first came to Delhi. But Ruavza is much older. It was created in 1907 by Hakim Hafiz Abdul Majid, a traditional medicine practitioner, to beat Delhi's scorching heat. So sugar is an ingredient. There is 10 herbs uh, and that provides the basic nature of the product, which is to cool the body down. That's Hamid Ahmed, Majid's great-grandson, who now runs the India food division of the company called Hamdard. There's also a Hamdard Pakistan, established by Ahmed's grand-uncle. Ruavza is the company's star product. So Ruavza uh, still is around 60% of Hamdard in India. 900 million glasses of Ruavza are consumed every year in India. 900 million glasses every year. There's also a fizzy variant, a sugar-free version, and a Ruavza milkshake. At the Hamdard factory near Delhi, cartons of bottles are moving up a conveyor belt and into a truck. During peak season, um, there are around uh, 20 to 25 trucks of Ruavza going out of the factory every single day. 
And if you want any more proof of Ruabza's popularity, just ask the vendor, Abdul Wahid. His stall in Old Delhi has been in his family for three generations. Those who have Ruabza once always come back, he says. One customer says she gets a Ruabza whenever she's in the neighborhood. Her friend says her family breaks their Ramadan fast with Ruabza and dates. A few feet away, there's a stall selling a special drink, milk, watermelon juice and ruavza. It's called sharbate mohabbat, the drink of love. But the vendor, Sandeep, says he himself isn't fond of ruavza. After mixing it all day, he doesn't really care for it, he says. He's not alone. Ruavza has its fair share of haters. Some people find it too sweet and consider it unhealthy. It is also up against a lot of competition from other drinks. But food critic Marim Rishi says Ruavsa has endured. Any product has ups and downs. But this thing is something that has weathered all storms. Rishi had to cut down her Ruavsa indulgence 10 years ago when she was diagnosed with diabetes. Since then, she says summers are just not the same anymore. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. What could be better than summertime and a really good book? At Weekend Edition, we're always on the hunt for book recommendations, old and new. So we're reaching out over the next few weeks to some of our favorite authors for suggestions. First up, thrillers. And Adrian McKinty is a master of the genre. He's the author behind the Just Can't Put Them Down novels, The Chain and The Island. Welcome, Adrian, to the show. It's wonderful to be here. I notice that you have some suggestions for books that are about bad things happening on airplanes, which is kind of one of my favorites. Tell us about these books. Is your intent to have people reading them while they're flying? Because that's when I do a lot of my reading. Okay, I have to say the two thrillers I have, Drowning by T.J. Newman and The Anomaly by Hervé Letelier, are so terrifying that I would absolutely not read them on the plane. Okay. Um, <laughs> those books really scared me witless, and I would read them on the beach, I would read them on the bus, I would read them in other forms of transportation, but oh my goodness, me personally, I would not read these on a plane. <laughs> and so what makes them stand out? Well, they're just so gripping and so realistic. Um, you, you're absolutely right there in the action. T.J. Newman, this is her second book about airplane disasters. They say it's like a disaster procedural that she does. And those books, oh my goodness, her first one was called Falling. The second one is called Drowning. And they're both about things that plausibly, absolutely could happen. They're both sold at airports. I wouldn't buy them at the airport. <laughs> What about the anomaly? Is that also kind of a procedural or how does it differ from the drowning one? That's a little bit stranger. That's about an Air France flight from Charles de Gaulle to JFK and it hits a bump of turbulence and then strange things start to happen after it touches down in New Jersey. Oh, I like that. And that's a, <laughs> Yes, that's that, that one's quite a bit weirder. See, I like weird and I like when strange things start to happen. <laughs> Absolutely. That one will have you scratching your head 
um, for the first hundred pages, really scratching your head for the second hundred pages, and then at the end you're going to go, "What did I just read?" I love that book. I thought it was wonderful. And there's also a new novel by S. A. Cosby on your list. I spoke to him just a few months back about a kids' book that he wrote, and I'm guessing this one is not for kids. This one is not for kids. I was texting with Sean, and he was saying that he got the idea for this book while watching the scary and terrifying True Detective season one,、uh, which was really a scary, intense season. And he thought, "Hmm, I wonder if I can take that vibe and put it where I live, you know, in Southern Virginia." And he's turned in an incredibly dark and thrilling、uh, mystery novel, police procedural, set in his neck of the woods. That's also a wonderful book. And what's the name of the book? All the sinners bleed.、Mm. There is a new Ruth Ware book. She is huge in fiction land, and you see her books everywhere. I've read at least one of them. Our editor also says she's a fan. Tell us about Ruth Ware's new book. Okay, well, I've read all of Ruth's books, and I, I also, I'm a fanboy of Ruth. Um, so her novels tend to fall into an Agatha Christie one or an Alfred Hitchcock one, and this new one, Zero Days, this is definitely an Alfred Hitchcock one. This is a woman on the run story and、um, being pursued through England by goodies and baddies and the police, and it's just one of those novels where it starts fast, it keeps going fast, and it goes fast all the way through to the end.、Mm. And so, what else do you have for us? I see some intriguing titles. Like my sister, the serial killer, and Strange Sally Diamond. My sister, the serial killer, that definitely stands out. Okay, my sister, the serial killer. It's in paperback. It's been in paperback for a couple of years now. It's by Oinkin Braithwaite. She's a Nigerian writer from Lagos, and as you can imagine from the title, it's a dark. Comedic thriller that's take place in Lagos, and it's about a lady called Carita and her sister, and the relationship between her and her sister, which is、uh, it involves a love triangle,、um, their boyfriend, and, and also it says a murder. Also, <laughs> yes, also <laughs> the fact the unfortunate. Problem that her sister is a bit of a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> That's always tricky. <laughs> yes, uh, and that book I found it to be. It's not just a thriller, but it's also really, really funny. I spent a weekend with、um, Oinkin at the the Oslo Writers Festival, and she was just as hilarious as the book is.、Uh, it's ironic and black humor, and so is Oinkin, and that's also a wonderful book.、Mm. And what about Strange Sally Diamond? So Strange Sally Diamond is just published. It's a really interesting story of a. A forty-two-year-old neurodivergent woman who lives in a small town in County Roscommon, in the middle of Ireland, and people are very suspicious of her. She doesn't talk much, and then strange events start to happen. Mm. Once again, the strange events. I love that. Strange Sally Diamond. That's by Lizzie Nugent. Lizzie Nugent, who's an Irish writer. She was born in Dublin, lived a bit in England, back in Ireland now. She's a really interesting writer. There's one last one on your list that's not as old, really, but you call it a classic of the genre, and I think. Most people are probably familiar with it because of that movie. Yes, this is the tenth anniversary of the paperback, 
Um, it, it doesn't seem like it's been 10 years. I don't know where time goes, but this is the 10th anniversary of the paperback of Gone Girl yes. by Gillian Flynn. And everybody knows that story. I'm not going to spoil it, but there's an amazing twist about a third of the way into the book. And I didn't see the twist coming and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. And the film does an incredible job keeping the truth of the twist in the book. It, the film is great. I think the book is better, but if you haven't seen film or read the book, read the book first and then jump into the film. That is Adrian McKinty. His new novel is The Detective Up Late. Thank you so much for these recommendations. Oh, thank you. And it's been a great year for thrillers and there will definitely be one that you can find. So pop into your local bookstore and you will definitely find a thriller to your taste. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Aisha Roscoe. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York supporting those working to improve the nation's immigration system and celebrating the contributions of immigrants to American life. More at carnegie.org slash greatimmigrants. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR, where Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me is next. I'm Susan Levy. 76 degrees at 959 sunshine, mid-80s today. It's time for a Beach Book recommendation from WBUR. Here's Hannah Ali. The Cherry Robbers by Saray Walker is a gothic New England tale about a family of sisters, each cursed to die on their wedding night. The curse came true for each of Iris Chapel's five older sisters, and now Iris is determined to avoid their deadly fate. She changes her name and moves far away from home, but when a journalist investigating the Chapel girls' deaths reaches out, Iris is forced to reckon with her family's past. In The Cherry Robbers, Walker examines the horrors of love and running away from generational trauma. If you're in the mood for a little Halloween in July, The Cherry Robbers is a good pick for you. To get weekly book recommendations like this sent straight to your inbox, subscribe to our free newsletter at wbur.org slash beachbooks. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.